We're all individuals. So, on the most basic level, I guess it makes sense to us that we should learn differently too. We can probably anecdotally back that up just by looking at the way our children played and interacted when they were younger. And we're not alone in thinking that. In fact, the overwhelming majority of educators and teachers believe that you should match the lesson to a style of learning. Odd then that the research over the last decade or more should have found there's absolutely no evidence to support the idea of learning styles. Hello and welcome to the Study Sessions podcast. I'm Nathan, the founder of The Study Buddy and your host. In this, our second season of the podcast, we're following six students as they study their way to their GCSEs in 2021, or at least what was intended to be their 2021 exams. Each week, I catch up with these very different teams to see how things are going in a one-to-one coaching session. Then, with a panel of experts in our weekly podcast, we discuss some of the issues that come up. They could be broad themes, such as motivation and managing mental health, or they could be quite focused, such as how best to revise for a specific subject. Now, these are normal teams, so you can be sure that we'll be covering topics that young people up and down the country will face. So, if you're a parent, a carer, or a teacher, be sure to subscribe. This week, we're looking at learning styles, why it's considered to be a neuromyth, and whether or not it actually even matters. I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Phil Newton. Phil is the Director of Learning and Teaching for the Swansea University Medical School. Phil teaches neuroscience across a variety of programmes in the school, and he also teaches evidence-based education as part of the school's online programme. He's also written numerous papers, including recently How Common is Belief in the Learning Styles Neuromyth and Does It Matter? Phil, thank you so much for joining me. Most of our students think of themselves as visual learners. They tend to draw mind maps or focus on the aesthetic quality of their notes, perhaps doodle their way through lessons. Other popular alternatives for learning styles are auditory or kinesthetic learners. Thinking that they learn better one way rather than another means that our students tend to focus on activities that lean to their stronger suit. I'm just no good at this creative stuff. Anastasia told me that she thinks she's a visual learner because it helps her to stay engaged and also that she understands better that way. Phil, let's start at the beginning. What do people mean when they're talking about having a particular learning style? So learning styles means different things to different people and that's probably one of the key issues which has caused some of the difficulties we might go on to talk about. When it comes to an educational theory, Learning styles means two very specific, very related things. The first is the idea that we do have preferences for the way in which we learn. But when we're using learning styles theory, they're very specific preferences that are captured using these diagnostic tools. And normally what it is is some sort of questionnaire. There's 70 odd different ways that this is done with a number that are very common. 
And those of us who were teachers would give these to our students and they would fill them out and it would give them a whole bunch, it asked them a whole bunch of questions about the way in which they prefer to learn. And then it would classify them into one of a small number of supposed learning styles. And you mentioned visual, auditory and kinesthetic. That's a very common way in which this is done. Things like the Honey and Mumford and the Kolb's learning styles systems, Dunn and Dunn, Feldman and Silverman, things like that. Very common in the literature. And The first thing of the two that I mentioned is it classifies people into a supposed learning style. It says this is your apparent preference. And that itself is problematic, but not as problematic as the second thing, which is the application of the theory, what you do with that knowledge, which suggests that as teachers, we should be teaching people according to their supposed learning style. And then learners themselves should be studying according to their supposed learning style. That's problematic because... When we ask people to fill in these questionnaires, they show very modest, if not poor, reliability. And reliability means something very specific in this sense. It means if I fill in the questionnaire on a Monday morning, will I give the same answers and come up with the same classification or same diagnosis as if I fill the questionnaire in on the following Saturday night? And the answer is not really or not often enough for that information to be useful. Nevertheless, people do that quite often. And then They propose that, as I said, that we match instruction to learning styles, we match teaching to learning styles. And what that says is that at teachers, once we've given our students this questionnaire, we should then design four or multiple versions of our instructional materials, of our lessons, of our classes, of our lecture materials, or whatever it might be. And then students can then learn using a version of the class materials that matches their supposed learning style. And the prediction is that they will do better if we do that. And that is a specific prediction that lends itself well to being tested. It has been tested. And unfortunately, there's no evidence to support the fact that it works. So how do you go about testing? that? Is that to say then that classes going into a particular exam would be taught against their preference and then they sit the same exam at the end test at the end to find out that actually they all did as well as they would have done normally the way that it's tested is you would for example you i don't know you take 50 kinesthetic learners 50 visual learners you teach them all using visual methods so one group would be getting teaching that matches their preferred learning style one group would be getting teaching that doesn't and then you give them all the same test at the end and the visual learners who've been taught using the visual methods should do better than those who are taught using the kinesthetic methods that has been done it's been more commonly done with the cold learning styles method actually than with varg but it has been done for both there's no evidence to show that Students taught using their preferred learning style do better. But there is, from what you've just said there, because you're talking about people being visual learners or kinesthetic learners. So learning style is a thing. The issues are the the fluidity that it could change one moment to the next. But it sounds much more to be in the fact that we shouldn't be relying on that as a way in which we teach. Yes, I think that's a fair point. The reliability of the preference itself is problematic. That varies depending upon the specific learning style classification system you're using. Some of them are more reliable than others. The bigger problem really is what you do with that information. You may be able to come up with a way of reliably classifying people into one or more groups based upon a certain set of characteristics. But does that mean that they should then be taught or study using ways that are matched to those characteristics? And the evidence shows us that it doesn't work. But there's also, if you work through the application of that theory, then you can see quite quickly how it doesn't work. So we know that it doesn't work and we can also explain why. So I'll give you some examples. I teach in a medical school. You know, we teach our medical students to do lots of different things. One of the things we teach them to do is, for example, to recognize different skin conditions. 
know, different rashes to tell the difference between acne and dermatitis and melanoma and all the other skin conditions that are, that are common. That is visual information. There's no way to learn that without the visual information. You couldn't learn to listen to melanoma or to dermatitis. It's not auditory information, it's visual information. And the converse is true of, say, heart sounds. One of the things we ask, another thing we ask medical students to be able to do by the time they graduate is to listen to someone's chest, listen to someone's heart, recognize the sound of a heart that's functioning normally, and then recognize some common things that might be wrong or might be different about a heart. That's auditory information. You couldn't learn that by looking at, really learn that by looking at pictures. So that's one obvious way in which the theory falls down once you start to try and think about applying it. And perhaps the easiest way of thinking about that limitation is to think of the style being attached to the content rather than the learner. There's visual material, there's auditory material. Probably the more common problem with trying to apply the theory is that although there are certain types of information, as I've just mentioned, that exist predominantly in one style, most of the things that we want people to be able to do by the end of their education require multiple different forms of information. So if we stick to the example of our medical students, what we want them to be able to do by the time they qualify as junior doctors is to sit in the doctor's office and engage in a consultation with a patient. So you think about whenever you've been to see your GP, you go in to see the GP and the GP has to do a number of things. They have to listen to you. Hopefully they do listen to what it is you're telling them. They're going to want to look at whatever it is problematic, particularly if it is something, say, a skin condition or a part of the body is troubling you. They're going to read your notes. They're going to write their own notes. And they're often also going to examine you. So that's auditory information, visual information, written information and kinesthetic information. You know, hop on the couch and, and let's have a look. Most of the things that we think of exist either as multimodal, like the example I've just given you, or they exist predominantly as one form. So we couldn't teach students, we certainly couldn't teach medical students to learn how to examine a patient using only auditory or only visual information. They need all of those different types of information. And, and if you try and restrict them to predominantly one type, then they're not going to do as well. And those two conceptual arguments are perhaps the explanation for why the empirical argument stacks up and that learning styles don't work. So if you were to dial out these extreme cases, I guess, and even as I say extreme, I'm hesitating, but I've said it now. So these sort of outliers where you've got art, which may be predominantly more aesthetic, for example, or music where you clearly need auditory inputs and medical science. If we come into the main bulk of what's studied at school, maybe even into college, does the same still apply? Is there a case of, actually, if your preference is for visual, you're more likely to be engaged and therefore making your posters in history is likely to be more impactful for one student rather than listening to an audiobook, for example? That's a really good question and it gets to the heart of what do we do with this empirical science that we've got. You talked in the introduction about some of the students that you've been working with who it sounds like they've told you they are a visual learner or some other form of learner. I know myself that when my daughter's birthday present, which is a new games console, eventually arrives, I'm going to unpack it and plug it in and keep pressing the buttons on it until it does the thing that it's supposed to do. Whereas she is much more likely to read the instruction manual before engaging with it. And certainly I have friends who will not even open up a new piece of kit until they've read the instruction manual. And I think that's a fairly consistent behavior for me. And that's the sort of thing that your students and all of us will base 
as statements on that I am often a kinesthetic learner. There's two issues with that that I guess reflect an answer to the question you posed to me. I would say that I am predominantly a kinesthetic learner, but am I going to be a kinesthetic learner when I buy my new chainsaw? Probably not. If I am a visual learner, it might be a case that I learn a lot from watching YouTube videos. I certainly do. Would I learn as much from a podcast? I think I probably can learn a lot from podcasts, and I hope your listeners are learning as we talk. Somebody who learns predominantly visually by learning YouTube videos, would I advise them to do that whilst they were on their morning commute? Again, probably not. And there's flippant examples, but I think they illustrate the point that a lot of what we think of as our stable preferences are very context dependent. And we might think because we've done the questionnaire a couple of times that we came out as a visual learner a couple of times. Actually, if we work it through and specifically apply it to learning different things, our answers are going to change. So that's my long-winded way of saying Preferences we think we have probably aren't as stable as we imagine them to be. But also, I guess that there's an element of it being a default because that's how you've done things, because it's easier, because it's it feels more natural. So as you say, not reading the instructions on the games console is probably not objectively, you'd agree, the best way of going about it, but you're going to do it nevertheless. So actually, <laughs> you've not taken into account when you determined what your learning style is, actually what your best learning style is. You've just said... That's actually, I accept this is how I'm going to do it. And you've moved on. That's a good point. Yes. And it gets to the question you asked previously. If one of your students comes to me and says, listen, I'm a visual learner and I'm going to prefer to do things this way. It is not going to be helpful for me to say, don't be so stupid. There's no such thing as visual learners. And I think that's a really important point that is often lost in what has become some quite heated discourse about the nature of learning styles and their status as a so-called myth. The same will be true of teachers. As you said, we've done some research which shows a staggeringly large number of teachers do appear to believe that this is an effective way of teaching people, although there are some caveats to those findings. But what do we do with that information? Do we, we summons them in and say, listen, what you've been doing is wrong? I'm not sure that's necessarily helpful. There's some need to make sure that people are aware of the lack of an evidence base for it, but there's ways and means of doing that. And if you particularly think about the sorts of ways that you are asked to operationalize learning styles theory, the sorts of people who have actually done that, it's a huge amount of extra work for people. You know, I do a lot of my teaching as lecturing. I stand up in front of people and, and I give a presentation. If I then had to make that into a podcast and into an interactive kinesthetic session and provide a written transcript of it all as well, that's tripling, quadrupling the amount of work that I've done. But some people we think are doing that because they firmly believe it's a good thing to do for their students. Those sorts of people are the people that are going the extra mile or the extra 100 miles to do right by their students. And if some Burke from medical school comes along and says, no, no, mate, that's a load of rubbish. You don't want to do that. I just That's not going to go down well. It's not going to be helpful for anyone, certainly not in the short term and maybe not the best way to get the message out there. So I don't know what the answer is to that. You know, If you've reached the age where you're studying for GCSEs or A-levels or beyond, you've convinced yourself that you have a preference it is modestly stable i don't know that debunking that is the best strategy and maybe we patiently explain the basis for it but then go on to say like you know it's it's a good thing that you've got these preferences but hey how about retrieval practice how about interleaving how about writing yourself some tests or some of the other evidence-based strategies that i know you've talked about before that are helpful for studying and maybe just leave the learning preferences alone. There's the danger though that not so much that the pupil has determined that they've got a learning style preference that they're seeing through or, or not 
but if the teacher is trying to determine what it is. So if we can accept that actually learning styles don't have an impact on outcome, but students might prefer one style of learning over another, isn't it dangerous to try to help them identify a learning style that actually won't have any impact on them? Because I do get that a teacher who's gone that extra mile, as you say, to produce four or five versions of experiencing knowledge is actually catering to all. And so a visual learner who can also kinesthetically interact with geography might actually really be a very powerful thing. But to actually go and find out how it is that one pupil might find a preference or a questionnaire seems to me to be a little dangerous in that we're limiting their potential options. Absolutely right. I would not advise anybody to hand out these questionnaires or to take these self-tests online, although I think that's probably a big part of their appeal because we all love taking a, a little quiz online. I think that's why BuzzFeed has become one of the most popular news organizations on the planet is because everyone loves those little quizzes to find out what type of donut they are or which Simpsons <laughs> character they are. It's a similar sort of thing. It's obviously more serious, but it has a certain intuitive appeal, which I think is part of the difficulty with dealing with it. But where people are handing out these questionnaires, there is the potential that they're doing harm. Now, this is something that's often talked about, but I don't really know that there's good evidence other than common sense, which is potentially good evidence to suggest that it is harmful. But you can see quite easily how if you're 10 years old or 11 years old and come home from school and you tell your parent or carer, look, I did this questionnaire today and I'm an auditory learner, you can see how that sets up all sorts of potential expectations of how life is going to go. You know, I'm going to be good at music. I should go out, learn a musical instrument. And maybe that same questionnaire said, you know what, you've got high scores on the auditory part. You're not so hot on the read-write part. I'm not going to be a writer. I'm not going to be a novelist or a journalist. And it does potentially pigeonhole people into a, a very narrow range of perceived abilities, which are not reflective of true potential. There's other harms associated with it or potential harms associated with it as well. It costs quite a lot of money often to buy the fully official versions of some of these instruments. It takes time to hand out those questionnaires. As we talked about already, it takes a lot of time to make multiple representations of your classes. And then I think there's also a reputational question for us as teachers. You know, if we seem to be doing this sort of stuff when we the evidence for it is the best questionable, that's going to undermine people's confidence that we know what we're doing and in, in us as evidence-based practitioners. So it is all potentially harmful. Now, we did look at this in a small study that we did where we were surveying people's beliefs in the efficacy of learning styles, and we showed them the evidence or lack of evidence about this, and then we explained all of these harms to them. We said, what do you think about this? Does this sound like it's potentially harmful? And they agreed with all of them. So they could see that there was the potential harm. But then, in a very chastening moment as part of the study, once we'd explained the evidence to them and we'd explained the harms to them and they had all agreed and said, yeah, yeah, we can see how this is potentially harmful, and we then asked them, are you still going to use learning styles? A third of them said yes. So... You know, and there was a free text section to that research instrument, which told us a lot about why that is, which maybe we can come on to. But yeah, that's the only evidence I'm aware of. The ones that looked into the harm because they all make sort of intuitive sense. People agree with them. It's so interesting, isn't it, that you can be told and you can accept that, OK, it's limiting, it's harmful, potentially harmful, one way or another to adopt a learning style. But still, emotionally, I believe I'm a visual learner. I don't know why I can't even sat here talking to you, shrug that sense that things, even though I believe every word that you're saying, I know that because I default to mind maps, I must be more visual than I am anything else. So I think there's two things to that. 
I think one of them is that we, you know, we are all learning all the time, you know, and it's one thing almost all of us have in common is we've spent many, many years of our life in formal educational settings. We've had a lot of practice in figuring out our personal preferences for the way that we do things. And that learned experience is valuable and it's difficult to shake and maybe not something that we should try and overturn. A related point, I guess, would be that there are some things which demonstrably effective. The effect size, i.e. the amount of impact that these things are going to have versus what you're comfortable with doing, isn't huge. So you're not doing yourself any damage by making my maps. I'm not doing myself much damage by just pressing all the buttons until things happen, unless it is you know, a chainsaw or a car or something. And then the second point, which is really important, I think, and does get lost a lot in the discourse about learning styles, is that there are individual differences for how well we do on certain learning tasks. This is actually something maybe we should have, I should have said at the beginning, and you know, I will say it now and probably say it again, because it bears repeating, that lots of what is intended through learning styles theory comes from a good place you know it comes from two good places the first of which is trying to apply some of the biology and psychology and evidence about how we learn in a practical sense to the everyday jobs that we do as as educators and the second part of it comes from trying to capture respect and recognize individual differences and let people express those in the way that they learn in the hope that it will improve things and i think those are both noble intentions that we should strive towards the first of those some of the science around how we learn like i said does show that there are individual differences for how well people will do on certain learning tasks and that's the genesis of a lot of these learning styles theories so if i give you a simple example let's say you had a group of 100 people and you gave them a task where you showed them pictures of birds. Let's say there were 20 birds they'd never seen before, and you were trying to teach them to recognize one particular species of bird from the other 19 species of bird. It's a novel task, so none of them have seen them before. Most people will be able to do it, but some people will be able to do it better than others. Some people will learn more quickly and will retain the information for longer. And so if you show them six months later the 20 pictures and ask them which one is the, I don't know, the Welsh macaque or the Welsh macaw, they'll be able to pick it out. There is no such thing as the Welsh macaw or the Welsh macaque, which is a monkey, but nevertheless, I'm losing myself here, aren't I? Okay, let's say you take that same group of people and play them the songs of those 20 birds. And you say, I want you to pick out the Welsh macaw from the 19 other species of bird. There are people who will be able to do that better or worse than, than others okay so some people were better at that than others and according to most current modern theories of what we call intelligence the people who are good at being able to distinguish between those visual pictures are more or less the same people who are good at being able to distinguish between the sounds if you're good at one thing you're good at another but the overlap is not complete Okay, and so there is some variance. There are some people who are better at distinguishing the visual information. There are some people who are better at distinguishing the auditory information. And that probably also explains, at least in part, why we perceive ourselves as being one particular type of learner, because we may be slightly better at learning a particular way compared to other people. And through our experiences in school and other forms of education, that sort of, you know, we tend to gravitate towards the things that we enjoy and the things that we're good at. And maybe that explains part of it too. I might be straying into semantics, but is there a difference between visual content? So seeing the pictures of birds and retaining that picture and learning facts, figures, maths, for example, in a visual way. Is there any distinction between them? 
So there are different ways that we can represent. When we learn things, we tend to learn them in multiple different ways. Okay, we, there are multiple representations, and that has led on to some good evidence-based suggestions for learning and teaching and studying, things like dual coding theory, which is occasionally confused with learning styles, and others. And then when we consider the biology of memory, there are multiple different ways in which we represent things, but there are also different types of memory. So there is memory for facts. You might remember the fact that Paris is the capital of France. There's memory for experiences. So you would remember the time that maybe you went to Paris. There's memory for what we call procedural memory. So riding a bike or, or swimming. There's motor memory or muscle memory, which is related to that procedural memory. And it involves learning the sort of fine coordination required to do things like, I don't know, knitting and also part of riding bikes and things. And then there's emotional memory. And I want to say associative learning. That's not the right term. But the way in which we're conditioned to learn to associate neutral things with unconditioned stimuli. So things like Pavlov's dogs is a very commonly excited example of classical conditioning. It involves dogs, so it puts lots of people off, but we do learn lots of things that way as well. All those different types of learning are quite different. They all work together, mostly in a real-time, day-to-day basis when we're learning something, but they do occupy different parts of our brain at different times and in different ways. It's my very long-winded way of saying, yes, there are differences. How useful is it for us to try and account for those types of differences when we're trying to learn something? I don't know, other than some of the different multiple representations or dual coding. You wouldn't be in a good place if you tried to use emotional conditioning rather than, say, declarative or explicit memory to learn something. I think you best leave the type of learning to the content rather than to the individual, if you see what I mean. I was going to say, that's what you were talking about before, wasn't it? With the medical subjects that you cover, is that actually the content will determine. So learning the various skin conditions is, is a visual thing. You can't do that in any other way, really. And so is it then true that where possible accepting that some of these fields are quite narrow, that where possible you should try to mix up the ways in which you approach new content to help embed it into your memory? Yes, I think that's a good point. So I mentioned before this idea of dual coding. So this is a technique or a strategy that's been around a long time. But I think what's happened with dual coding is that the educational psychologists or the education researchers and the cognitive psychologists and the neuroscientists have all been working on a similar problem, but they haven't ever sat down and talked to each other and compared notes. So they all end up saying something similar, but the language is very, very different. And the application of it, again, is slightly different. So the simplest way of capturing what they're all saying is exactly as you said, that it's best to try and make multiple representations of something when we're learning it. And the way that that's operationalized with dual coding theory, or at least the premise of dual coding theory, is that when we learn, we encode things in two different ways, as pictures and as words, which then gets expanded into uh, visual or visual-spatial formats and verbal formats. Pictures tend to be superior to words. There's a phenomenon called the picture superiority effect, which says if we learn things using pictures, we tend to use better than if we learn them using words. But I think that better still is to use both of those things. And if you compare pictures and words pair as in put those two things together then people tend to do better and then if when people are studying if let's say you've got you're trying to learn i don't know the structures of the heart and you've got a picture in front of you 
cover up the label of that or the text that describes that and try and write down a summary of what it is that you see and then do the converse. You know, if you've got a text description of something that you're trying to learn, draw a picture of it. And if you can create those multiple representations, then the chances are your studying and your teaching is going to be more effective. The neuroscientists and the cognitive psychologists would approach that in slightly different ways. But, you know, there's auditory representations, there's motor representations, there's emotional representations, but the punchline would still be the same. If you can capture your learning with multiple representations of the thing you're trying to learn, then you're going to be in better shape. And that's multiple representations at the same time. So not one day I'll study by using pictures and the next day I'll study by using words or reading. Or as you say, if it was music, then listening. It's trying to mix those two so that you're writing the labels on the diagram and drawing the diagram around the labels. Yes, I think so. Although I think it's very easy to get dual coding wrong because there's a simple and logical, seemingly logical and seemingly obvious interpretation of it, which says I need to have pictures and words at the same time. Now, as someone who spends a lot of time, as I said, lecturing, that can quite easily mean that people interpret dual coding as I put the picture up and then I put up the words that describe the picture and then I talk over the top. And when you do that, then you can quickly overload people. There's a whole other literature around what's called cognitive load theory in the biology of working memory. You're nodding at me, so it's, this maybe will be familiar to you listeners. But the basic premise is if you present too much information at the same time, people will become overloaded. And in particular, if you split people's attention, then they really struggle to concentrate on any one of the things that you're presenting them. So it's important to have words and pictures, but those things need to complement each other. And the worst thing you can do is put up a picture of something complicated put up a whole dense set of text that describes the thing that you're doing and then talk over the top but say something slightly different to what's in the text and then people's brains explode and nothing goes anywhere. Is there a danger with this that educators or actually researchers I should say and the various science fields are between them hedging their bets? So we've got learning styles exist because you do prefer to learn one way or another but maybe you shouldn't do anything about it just acknowledge that that is the case. We can then accept that Actually, when we're learning something, if we're using more than one approach, dual coding, then actually that's good, unless we're doing it too much, in which case we're, we're going to have cognitive load. And so all of these things kick in. Is there a way through this maze or is it a case of well, just keep going and see what works for you? And, and when it stops working, try something a bit different? Yes, there absolutely is. You know, I'm conscious as I've been sat here talking that I've done a lot of hedging and caveating. And I think with the learning styles thing, I think the key point to get across is it doesn't work. Don't make it worse, but telling people that they're wrong or that they're idiots or that they're, you know, they're perpetuating myths is probably not going to be helpful, and, and we just leave it be. Dual coding is effective, but it's just important to get it right. And there are lots of things that we can do as teachers in any context, be it standing in front of you know, four or 500 university students or, as many of us are doing now, homeschooling our own kids. Many, many things we can do that are effective. And actually, when you dig into the literature, many of the things that we can do are really straightforward and simple. Basic things like being a clear communicator, listening to people, not overloading people, being able to give constructive feedback that balances criticism with being constructive. Simple things like that make a huge difference. Retrieval practice, of all the supposed evidence-based strategies for learning, I think retrieval practice is the one that has an overwhelming body of evidence to support it. It's pretty straightforward to do. And I think it's also motivating as well, which is something that often gets lost in discussions about effective teaching methods. 
everyone loves taking well lots of people love taking quizzes and better still is if you can get people to write quizzes for each other that's a really powerful strategy because in order to write a question for somebody else you've got to know the material yourself you know it takes us back to the best way to learn is to teach same principle applies to retrieval practice if you can get people to write questions for each other they have to have learned the material themselves to be able to ask other people questions about it and even if you just did those things focus on communication good listening constructive feedback building retrieval practice don't overload people you're really a long way to doing things that are effective you know and, and they're things that they require a bit of practice sure but you know you don't have to have a phd in educational science to be able to do that i don't think and how you do it according to a learning style seems to be actually not particularly important in that whether you try to do your retrieval in a verbal i can't imagine immediately how you might do it through the power of mime but if you were to try it in a non-written way then actually that's just as powerful so coming back to mixing up how you do it to maybe keep interest but not finding a way because you think that's how you learn best you can certainly mix up the ways in which you harness the power of retrieval practice often called the testing effect and it's most commonly associated with taking practice tests or quizzes or writing them but i think the phrase that the scientists will use most commonly is anything that brings to mind the key content is taking advantage of retrieval practice. And the name retrieval practice you know, can be fairly obnoxious to some people because it sounds like the sort of thing you'd do with a pet. It's linked to the psychology and the neuroscience of learning. One of the things we do when we're learning something is we retrieve our existing knowledge about it and then we match the new thing that we're currently paying attention to to what we already know. And that's where retrieval practice comes from, practicing, prompting that process. You can ask people to explain something. Some of the literature refers to that as elaborative practice or elaboration. That would be a you know a spoken or a verbal performative approach. If with some people that has the added motivation of if you ask people to explain something to their peers, then you've got a presentation aspect, which some people love and some people hate, but it's certainly motivating. The mind maps that you talked about are another way of doing that. It's bringing to mind everything that you know about something and you can ask students alternatively to just write down everything that you know about a topic particularly as you begin a new study session let's say you're trying to learn i don't know photosynthesis or the history of democracy in the uk write down a page that describes everything that you know about this before you go on to the next thing that you want to learn that brings to mind everything that you currently know about it there's a whole other literature about making existing memories more labile so it's easier for new memories to be built into the ones that you already have if you've brought them to the surface and they all take advantage of that same principle of bringing to mind the key content yeah there's nothing wrong with doing it multiple ways but i guess what we're still saying is though that trying to predetermine how your child learns best whether it's in a teaching context or as a parent so I know you best. I know the way you work is visual. Let's get the crayons out. It's not like to be helpful either for the learning that's happening immediately or, as you mentioned, for actually how they start to see themselves and therefore think about what kinds of jobs they might go in for in future. I'm a pragmatist at heart. And, you know, I think you've got to apply this theory in a way that's useful, that isn't just fixed by rigid academic principles. It's going to vary depending upon you know, the age of the learner and other different characteristics of them. If you can get your homeschooled kid actually doing something, then that's got to be better than telling them, let's not get the crayons out, let's do something else, and they don't want to do that, they want to play Minecraft instead, then you, you know, you've net lost, haven't you? So 
perpetuating the idea that they're a visual learner probably is going to be in the long term harmful. But if they say, look, I'd rather do this by drawing some pictures of it than watching it on YouTube or BBC Bite Size, whatever it is, then yeah, you know, whatever gets them learning has got to be a good thing, I think. Absolutely. And also it can be mixed up by subject, as we said before, but looking actually at mixing that up so that their science may be more visual the geography might be more hands-on and tactile but not every lesson again so keep things flowing because what we found is that that also helps the students with their engagement and motivation if it's not all the same then if they ruled themselves out as being reading and writing based learner that actually they can still maintain an interest in the subject and and find their own ways of engaging yeah i think that's a really good point and there's lots of good literature about what we call interleaving. You may have already talked about this. That refers to mixing up the subjects maybe than the modalities. But I think that where it comes from is something similar. Most of us get fatigued by doing the same thing over and over again. And particularly if we start to struggle with it, and rather than trying beating ourselves over the head and persisting with one particular approach or one particular subject, try something different and it's it changes as good as a rest when it comes to studying mm. i think that's particularly pertinent at the moment because obviously we're remote learning so an awful lot of young teens are in front of a laptop a lot of the time and that can feel really really monotonous so maybe looking at ways in which they can do something around that that's not screen-based will be helpful on every level for them. I think that's right. And there are ways, you know, if it has to be from a screen, you can do things multiple ways while still being in front of a screen. But yeah, if you can if you can get them doing something, it's got to be a benefit. And I am speaking more from my experience as a, a homeschooler than, you know, as a neuroscientist. It's slightly different, I think, with the university students from my experience at least compared to my 11 year old daughter i think if we can get her doing something whether it's in the garden whether it's with you know pens and paper or whether it's with a, a tablet or a laptop then you know we're happy that she's doing something rather than not i do love that idea that actually as your as your 11 year old is coming in whether or not you're applying your work knowledge to what it is that she's doing do you find yourself doing that when it comes to certainly to my experience as a homeschooling teacher and my experience as a kid there were things that I just did not want to learn and I think their motivation is possibly more important or takes on a greater importance than some of the other things we've talked about because I've got to get them doing something and it would be better if they were contentedly just reading something and never taking a practice test than not doing anything at all. We do try our bit. I think it's also fairly obnoxious of me to assume that the things that have been designed by my child's teachers are, are not going to be effective. So I, I'm content to leave them as the experts when it comes to designing the homeschooling for, for the kid. They must love parents' evening. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's, it's interesting because I know that when I first started looking at learning styles, it made me quite cross as a neuroscientist initially. I'm much more sanguine about it now, but I certainly did go around the school my daughter was at then looking for evidence that they were handing out learning styles questionnaire, which they were not. But since then, I think my experience that we've talked about earlier of the reaction you get from people when you try and debunk things that don't work, I think it just suggests that it's better to focus on prompting and promoting things that are good recognizing and foregrounding stuff that is already being done that's good and maybe just leave the other stuff to fade out i'm a model parent in parents evening i promise you <laughs> when you start telling people that something they've been doing with all the right intentions for a long time is wrong it jars and there's a phenomenon in psychology called the backfire effect which says that when you actually try and persuade people to stop doing something or that something is wrong they actually might do it more 
as a population. So the conclusion we came to from that and from all the other work we've done is give people advice about what works and just yeah, leave the debunking behind. Explain to people about retrieval practice. Explain to people about the limitations of human working memory and how that affects the ways in which we learn and the amount that we can learn and the way that we might design teaching and, and then, then let people get on with that. And that's the single most powerful thing I think we can teach people about the science of learning, which is where learning starts comes from. If we can explain to people, allow people to develop a deep understanding of the fundamental limitations of human working memory, that can underpin a huge amount of what we do as teachers and as learners. And it's probably the most useful thing I think we can get across to people. Phil, thank you so much for your time and an incredibly interesting look at learning styles and, and why they maybe not. I find it absolutely incredible that so many of us can take part in this shared myth or, or neuro myth that we have a learning style. But it goes beyond the other kinds of ideas that we believe in because we believe in this so deeply, emotionally almost. This could be because we, we as parents can relate to it, albeit incorrectly. The majority of us could tell you what learning style we are, probably without even thinking about it. But Professor Phil and decades of research have made it clear there is no evidence that supports this idea. Now, it seems to me that this is different to a learning preference, because drawing a poster is perhaps more engaging than writing up a summary. But it also ignores the fact that certain content is better learnt in particular ways, as Phil said, you can't effectively learn about skin conditions without visual learning. There are dangers inherent in trying to pigeonhole a learner, as Phil explained. They may rule themselves out of pursuits because they think they're no good at working that way. And the alternative is also true. Believing themselves to be stronger with auditory learning, for example, might lead them to aspire to be a musician, but then become disillusioned if they don't succeed. The other problem, of course, is that we're limiting the way that our children learn if we're prescribing one route over another. Engaging students in learning may well be about them taking on a number of different learning styles for different topics, mixing it up a bit. We all know only too well at the moment how stifling and monotonous one route can be. And while the analogy to working remotely on a computer might not be a perfect fit for learning styles, I think it really illustrates the idea Doing things only one way can become tedious very quickly. And I do really like this idea of mixing things up and also keeping going until you find a good fit. But it's also important not to assume that one way will always be the best way. We should be encouraging our teens to keep trying and experimenting with different approaches. And while learning styles shouldn't be confused with dual coding theories, it does seem clear that when you mix more than one approach of learning, visual and verbal, for example, that stronger learning bonds and memories are formed. But really interestingly, and as Phil said, the knowledge that learning styles aren't a real thing is apparently not enough. For some, this is so entrenched, so ingrained, that even being presented with the evidence isn't enough to dissuade them. This might be the case with our teens, and in fact, it might even be the case with some of our teens' teachers. And Phil's advice? Don't try too hard to convince them otherwise. Where we can make them curious about other techniques, 
great. But the most important thing in Phil's view was perhaps to focus on the other cognitive science aspects that we know work, regardless of this idea of learning style. Retrieval, spacing and interleaving are all topics that we've touched on before. And if you haven't already, I would really encourage you to go back over previous episodes of this podcast and listen to them where we talk about them. Thank you for listening. I hope that you found this episode interesting and enlightening. I certainly have. If you did, it would be fantastic if you'd take a moment to leave a five-star rating and perhaps a review. It really does help us to reach other parents and spread the word on how they can support their own young people. Of course, and as always, sharing the link to this and other episodes with your friends on social media is always very much appreciated. There'll be another episode next week, so please don't forget to subscribe to the Study Sessions podcast.